Welcome back to another episode of Who's to Say. I'm your host, Tom Foolery, and today we are indeed going to get to the heart of matter. And this is a parallel path to several genuinely life-changing reads that I've been exploring lately, and it's worth another PSA to those of you who, if, if you are podcast people, I appreciate that very much, but my most fanatic medium that I try to promote is still books, and I just find it so easy to be inspired by the treasure troves that are contained within books. And that's why I always talk about them and link to them and try to recapitulate a lot of what I'm learning because it's lit such a fire, which is why I'm sitting down today, that I can't help but then, I mean, it, it's most useful to me if I can then go share it with you all. And today, th- this is, as best I can, an, an amalgam of some recent development on the spiritual science front as created and educated, edified by Dr. Rudolf Steiner. And this book that I picked up on a whim, truly, in a Littleton, New Hampshire herb shop, a little herb shop on Main Street in Littleton, New Hampshire, shout out them, uh, just a really cool cover, which is going to be the art for this podcast, and it's called The Secret Teachings of Plants. And although I eat so much meat, and, <laughs> and I don't, uh, or, or I guess I occasionally do shirk my responsibility to myself to eat more plants, I find myself gravitating back to uh, bit, featuring a bit more vegetables in my diet, because now it's springtime, and there'll be more bountiful soon, but I'm also recalling some of the lessons I've learned about the connection we have to the natural world. And plants occupy a significant segment of the roster here on this plant, uh, on this planet rather. Good, good slip there. Uh, we coexist with them. We so often ignore them, but they have so much to teach us. And one book that comes to mind that I think is really like no other is The Overstory. And I'll link to that in the show notes as well. The book's about people, but one of the recurring themes is, I, I, I might be from Ovid, the Latin author of, uh, of BC Times. And the theme is how things turn into other things. And this, in my mind, is tangential to the work of Dr. Rudolf Steiner, whom, if you don't know, I'll be linking to some some of his biographical information on Gaia, the streaming service, because he is one of these people whom I'm adopting as... Uh, a mentor from the grave, from afar. Because in in simplest terms, he created the best, most useful, 
most dynamic part of Western philosophy that I've encountered and that I think a lot of other people have echoed that as well. And it may seem, I mean, it's still a blend of some Eastern precepts, but what I have gleaned from, especially reading his book, Occult Science, which is really the regimen for developing yourself spiritually and due to his unique abilities, not only as a clairvoyant, but as someone who cultivated his own super sensible knowledge, he has this, and I, and I say has in the present tense because I, I feel like I have this budding relationship with him through his work. And his appreciation of the natural world is unlike what you get in most Western philosophy. And because I believe truths are timeless and simple, I'm really intoxicated by the work of Steiner because he makes it so tangible to understand and remember our connection to the natural world that we are now so separate from. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I wanted to open this discussion with something that I found of his. The more I get into his work, I unearth these very poetic musings that he shared with students and colleagues and friends, and they keep popping up in some of the circles I follow, and I thought this was an apt overture to commence our discussion today. And Dr. Steiner writes, May our feeling penetrate into the center of our heart and seek in love to unite itself with the human beings seeking the same goal, with the spirit beings who, bearing grace, strengthening us from realms of light and illuminating our love, are gazing down upon our earnest, heartfelt striving. That's a beautiful essence of what I feel like I'm in the midst of right now. And it is this earnest, heartfelt striving to go beyond a lot of the frustration and limitation of our current time, because it's certainly rife with all sorts of consternation, crisis, and following up on last week's episode about making America small again, then trying to reinvest, refocus our priceless energy, time, talent into more local concerns. Uh, even hyper-local, like the activity in your backyard, having a garden, but also the people nearest you, neighbors, uh, people at your children's school, uh, you know, pe people whom you may come to depend on, whether we see it or not, in this time of relative peace, although peace is not something that is granted everyone, may ha not have the inner peace that we should. Uh, Still, there's a level of dependency that I think is healthy insofar as we have the, the coding within us that is supposed to be in service to a tribe. And when we have this separateness, a lot of which is, I believe, fabricated by ego and the, the culture, the reinforcement that really supports the exploration of your I-ness, of your individuality, 
And I'm in favor of that to a point. But it's it's a selfishness that I mean I, I've I've advocated for it before because at the end of the day, it's still you going to sleep, it's still you interacting with your partner, it's still you creating and manifesting in this world, it's still you, and so therefore it behooves you. Hopefully it deeply inspires you to grow and question and mold yourself into the best piece of art that you can. And that is a very selfish process. It often takes on the form of exclusion to other interests, other people, and that's all very valuable. But what I'm inching toward on my path is this realization that on the other side of that, not that that's necessarily a finish line. I mean, we're, we're all very unfinished products and who knows if we'll ever, ever get to a finished polish by the end of our days. But there's certainly another milepost here that is, I think, still on the horizon wherein we remember again our inextricable connection to others. And that, that's really the point of this podcast. While I take a pretty scientific bent to start and science, as I've echoed on this podcast many a time, is not exclusive to the realm of people who uh, inhabit laboratories and identify as scientists. You and I are scientists. We, the things I'm talking about, the experiments that we do with our personalities, ego, practices, behaviors, diets, movements, etc. Those are all scientific experiments. We need to become the observer. That's one of the classic uh, monikers of the meditation practice is you need to become the observer. Instead of identifying with your thoughts, instead of following them to however many exponential possible ends, you just observe them and let them come and go as they please, as, as they want to do. But uh, there really is a science to everything. Uh, and one of the great analogies that I think is fitting for this is there's, which I'll hopefully explain over the course of these various segments of our understanding and what has been evaluated in the last several decades. Uh, the analogy to the experience of the love being put into food as it's prepared, and then the love that is then received by someone who is grateful, who is open, who is participating in a meal with someone who put that care in. And there's a communication that's going on there that I mean, we may feel like we fully appreciate that sentiment, but what I'm going to try to present to you all today is a fairly uh, digestible, to continue the food theme, version of this from the scientific world. And this is where I source a lot of the information from the book, The Secret Teachings of Plants, the first part of which is focusing so much on the nonlinear but very complex systems 
of our bodies. And nonlinear being the operative word there because so much of what we think we understand about our reality is misunderstood because it's linear. We think of time as linear. We think of our experience as linear. So much of what we build toward, you think about the world of professional occupations, thinking about the linear experience of, as I, I, I put in my time, as people often say, and it'll pay off in retirement. And thankfully, we're in a world where there are far more, uh, I think, readily available opportunities. I am a huge admirer of the uh, hobby economy, uh, the world in which you can channel your talents into some sort of content, or you know, now we have the the abundance of online store options. And I, I love that for people because that is a creative force in the world. People are doing things out of the love for it. And, and yes, I mean, I think you get pulled in the direction of, yeah, sure. This will, um, you know, th- this will be a payday for me, but there's enough people out there who you can really see the light shining through what they're actually producing. And I think that's a, that's a really beautiful thing. But, uh, what I'm really keen on especially, as I said, a follow-up to last week's episode of trying to recruit more ways of embracing our imagination and creativity, of course, is a phenomenal way to, to nourish that. Uh, but what's becoming increasingly apparent to me is that the brain is not necessarily going to be the womb from which our our, our newest and most fruitful discoveries emerge. Uh, I don't think the time of the brain is quite yet over, but my fascination with history and ancient history, to say nothing of occult or esoteric history, although that's part and parcel to this discussion as well, it's revealing once again that uh, it's it's such an unfortunate modernistic uh, uh, distortion of ancient history that these, uh, it, I, I'm hesitating to say it because it's such a disservice to the ancients and primal people, but we, we think of them as less than because they weren't modern. We think of them as savages and the word savage has been, uh, reappropriated these days to mean largely something good. If someone, People use it ad nauseum in the athletic world. That guy's a savage. He's a killer. Uh, he's an animal. And we do mean these things affectionately. But still, we, in the mainstream, I would say, have this unfortunate lens through which we look at ancient history and say, look at how unevolved those people were because they weren't able to uh, live indoors and have plumbing and have cell phones and TV and go to school, go to school and work for eight and 10 hours a day and work themselves to death and make a bunch of money that really isn't as valuable as we think it is. Uh, so I, w- I want to give more attention to ancient wisdom, especially in the world of health and True health, not not the health of, of six packs and low body fat percentage, but energy, vitality, and of course, which it will be a theme not only of this podcast, but all of them, hopefully, if I can honor that commitment and that discipline, the health that is also 
nourishing to the planet because the earth is alive as we're going to get into it mirrors a lot of the systems in our own bodies and if we can be humble enough to acknowledge that we're alive and that we have a life force within us that is not just it's not just obvious because we think i mean cogito ergo sum i think therefore i am is is an admirable presentation from Descartes, but it may not be the whole story. There are these elements of us that exist even before we think. And and here I want to dive in to the cellular cellular level because, I mean, this is about as fundamental as it gets. And on a, on a macro scale, on a larger scale, scale than cells, when we think about what we open or close ourselves off to that same phenomenon goes on on the cellular level because one of the cell's major responsibilities and and responses to electromagnetic activity which is going to be one of the more common threads through this discussion but it's a uh, unrelenting presence thanks to the earth that is alive there is a, a constant electromagnetic activity a lot of which is generated just through the cosmology of planet Earth and its living systems. But the cells of our body respond to that electromagnetic activity by opening and closing tiny doorways in the membrane surfaces. And the interface of that electromagnetic activity is thanks to electrolytes in our bodies. And those are commonly known as potassium, sodium, and magnesium, one interesting addition there is calcium, which is the the core substance that uh, that makes up our skeleton. So there we have our structure. But then, and there's uh, I'm a massive fan of LMNT electrolytes because they are a simple form that uses a, a, a natural sweetener that you can use in your drinks to to get the boost of of electrolytes, especially if you're an athlete, if you're someone who is very active and expends a lot of that energy. It's a crucial supplement, I would say, for any athlete to feature. But because, and this is, I, I don't always get into these technical explanations of why things are useful, but that, that's that been a great revelation for me is to realize why they're so useful because they help create um, or, or rather supplement, support the cellular function of opening and closing these cell membrane doorways to uh, to certain mechanisms and certain behaviors. And this is important because it, our, our bodies are so, such complex systems. And uh, one of the great takeaways from this book so far is that it's, it should be impossible to seek understanding by isolating certain parts of the body. Right, right now I'm talking about a whole system function a very complex, nonlinear, somewhat unpredictable system. And so when when scientists, when nutritionists, when they try to isolate certain functions, it's it's really hard to to appreciate the full understanding of that because it's outside of the system in in which it exists. And I mean you I, I started this discussion on the cellular level because that is where our life force exists. And again, I mean, the, the cells, they, 
they're in their formative stages in the womb, in the embryonic stage. Uh, and so that's before we really have an ego, an I, a self, especially one that's so greatly influenced by the world, which is largely how we come to, uh, at least in our day-to-day, in our in our minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour, year-to-year recollection, think of ourselves as in relation to culture, society, our networks, and how any sort of perturbation in our personalities is going to jeopardize our standing in there. And gosh, isn't that just a a real hindrance to our truest expression? Uh, But here I want to pick out a a great quote from Luther Burbank uh, featured in this book in 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 the chapter, The Energetics of Life, where Luther Burbank wrote, it is all a matter of vibrations, a matter of response to vibrations. In no other way than through vibrations do we get anything. You know the camera plate is struck with blows of light to burn into the sensitized surface of the picture you want to take. If you make what is called a time exposure, the blows are gentle, but sooner or later they make a dent in the gelatin. The lighter parts are burned deeply and the shadows in the black places are only just touched. But it is the steady tap, tap, tap of the rays of light that do the work. We are all made plants and fish and cats and elephants and men, of organisms built of tissue that is built of cells. The life force is in the cells, protoplasm made up of almost everything in the universe in infinitely minute particles. Now, because that protoplasm is made up of almost everything in nature, it responds to almost everything in nature. And I thought that to be a, a poignant, again, te- technical uh, diversion right there, just to say that, and, and I don't know if the camera language is confusing there, it was to me on first read, but um, talking about the capturing mechanisms of, of what goes on in the vibrational patterns of our lives. And what I'm musing as I, as I read through that again is how how separate, how interrupted, how disconnected we are from what we're actually experiencing. And, and what I mean by that is this is a world of distraction, of confusion, of, I would say, a, a lot of abuse of our natural principles. Our energy is often diverted to things that really don't matter. I have a a draft post that talks about how if you filled your home with garbage to any degree, wouldn't that offend your sensibilities? Wouldn't it totally degrade your ability to rest and rejuvenate yourself when you are home in the place that's supposed to be your castle? And yet, not only with what we consume, the food that is of not only poor quality, but often really uh, deleterious quality, uh, we consume entertainment, music, movies that are pure junk. And, and they, they therefore, because they're still consumed, because they then become a part of our experience and memory, even though they don't deserve the place they occupy there, then we are really dangerously distracted from 
I would say the things that really matter. And what we're missing is a coherence, a harmony. And th this comes from another very technical chapter of this book uh, about the energetics of life in particular, but the, the oscillating nature of our body systems, how they respond to get us to an ever-adapting equilibrium. And equilibrium is not one fixed state. The analogy used in the book is a clown on a unicycle that at a, at a very deep subconscious level, not, not even remotely on the conscious level, any perturbation, any change in balance of that clown on the unicycle has to be immediately corrected. Otherwise you get then the separation, the clown falling off the bike. And then you say, oh, the clown fell off the bike. But in the moment, in the moments when balance is maintained, then it looks like one thing. It has to be, or else, you know, you, you have to have that cohesion, otherwise the sep separateness ensues. And here there's a great short poem from the poet Kabir. I have been thinking of the difference between water and the waves on it. Rising water is still water. Falling back, it is water. Will you give me a hint how to tell them apart? Because someone has made up the word wave, do I have to distinguish it from water? And like ourselves, there are things that we consider separate that really aren't. Our interaction with people, I mean, there's a great saying that I really only experience you as I see myself. Uh, I think that comes across often in the, the phrase that I try not to use, if I were you. Whenever we give advice, I mean, I, I prefer the line, take my advice, I'm not using it, you know, <laughs> uh, it's probably more valuable to, to other people. But uh, I think this begs the question, how do we, how do we really ground or orient ourselves if we believe in this separateness? And, you know, if we, I think if we explore the idea of identity, that largely takes place in the brain. Uh, the the more we think about our plights and challenges and how we're going to prevail, uh, there's a there's a distinguishing factor where, of course, yeah, we're thinking about our role in that. But um, some of us are are more predisposed to consider others, and of course, other people fall on the end of that extreme where they they give too much in service of others to the sacrifice of their health and well being. But I, I see. Or, or what I what I glean from reading those words from Kabir is trying to reevaluate the separateness that I see, and are there? I mean, I I am a a a man of meaning. I prefer to seek out the depth and the significance in pretty much all of my encounters, uh, and I do that a lot through connecting with people. But I've been harsh on myself to recognize that sometimes it can be superficial and I am in search of, of the depths of that. And thankfully, you know, I now have some, some of the scientific literature to reference when I, I don't want to consider my brain the enemy. And for good reason, because the one, one subsection of the brain, the hippocampus is responsible for 
our spatial relationships, how we move in the world, our memory, and our meaning. And in this conversation about electromagnetism and the the, the reason why I wanted to spend so much time on this is because I am someone who has gotten into the, the lingo and the linguistics of talking about things like energy and electrician and, uh, and electricity and vibrations. And uh, a, a reference like this is useful because it gives me the, the substance to, to uh, inform myself about what I'm talking about and, and how I want to share it with you all. So critical in our understanding uh, as we transition from the brain on down, is that the hippocampus hosts magnetite, which is an iron ore that exists. It's in the you know part of the Earth's crust and core, and it's something that uh, like pigeons use to, and and bees and salmon they use that to orient themselves, to ground themselves in in the world, and whenever they're on the move, as they constantly are, because they're animals. And move a lot more than we do, that's for sure. But uh, but magnetite is very sensitive to the magnetic field. And its place in the hippocampus is a primary target for the molecules that carry information for our, our body to adjust to for ion balance, importantly for immunity, pain, reproductive status, and stress. And stress is one of those things that has risen to the fore of our public health discussion because chronic stress is pervasive and there are thankfully lots of tools out there to combat that. But again, we're, we're trying to understand and, and have a fundamental grasp of what some of the mechanisms are that in us that, that reside within us that we have to attend to as best we can and at least have an awareness of how and why these things are functioning. Uh, I mean, this part of the brain also works with the amygdala, another fun word and, and suborgan of the brain, uh, to modulate our physiological response to emotions. And this is really the tenor of today's discussion because what I, the threads that I began in the last episode and in episodes past is a lot more of a feeling consciousness. And my, my only caveat to that is that I think it's a fair criticism that when people say you're overfeeling this, when, when we feel like, although I, I, if I'm to check myself even here, uh, I think a lot of people misconstrue that with, uh, really a brain activity. And again, our, our stress in, in our emotional stress that comes across when we feel our identity threatened. I mean, that's so much of what, what stress is. Uh, aside from the physiological stress of inflammation, of uh, of organ malfunction, which we're going to get into shortly. Uh, but there's a feeling consciousness that I think is one of the keys to this wisdom that is going to help us recognize our connection to one another, to plants, animals, water, air, the earth, uh, the, the things that we're really going to need to heal, because as I've said before, we have rationalized ourselves. We have used our brain power to the majority of which promote separateness um, in, in, a, in manifold ways. But what I'm really driving at, and it continues to appear in the 
content that I seek out is, as I said, this this next milestone on the horizon of connection, reconnection, and and more of a recognition of it because it's always there. And another quote that I pulled from the book from Masanobu Fukoku, uh, Fukoka rather, uh, who I'll link to. I mean, another fascinating character who bears significantly on the way this story is told of our connectivity through nature. Uh, Fukoka wrote, each factor is meaningful in the tangled web of interrelationships, but ceases to have any meaning when isolated from the whole. In spite of this, individual factors are extracted and studied in isolation all the time, which is to say that research attempts to find meaning in something from which it has wrested all meaning. And one additional quote to echo this is from Goethe, who wrote that an organic being is so multifaceted in its exterior, so varied and inexhaustible in its interior, that we cannot find enough points of view nor develop in ourselves enough organs of perception to avoid killing it when we analyze it. And this is not to say, those are two scientists, but they really understood the heart of matter and the heart of this matter in particular that isolation is not how you get to know something and i think this is the issue we've faced again in a lot of our systems that especially in the last couple of years when being sick meant that you had to isolate and fear of getting sick from others or fear of getting others sick meant isolation and uh, I don't know what the next version of that might be, but uh, it, it's also, I think, presenting as the individuality in, in social media and profiles and uh, the some of the language around not being in codependent relationships where, uh, whether it's man or woman, being so supremely independent that you really sort of think of yourself as this. Uh, isolated element in a cohabitation and it doesn't really seem to be a very positive organic way of looking at relationship but nonetheless one of my takeaways from reading something like that is that you know humans are isolated and reduced to their identity whereas the spiritual science that I profess is really dedicated to as I mentioned earlier, that individuation process, which highlights the uniqueness within the wholeness, that you are in fact this unique being who is worthy of your consummate attention, and yet you exist within this interconnectedness, this holistic reality, this universe, this one verse, one sound of which you are just a note and a potent, harmonious one, nonetheless. Uh, but, so if, I don't want to hang all of our issues on the hat of the brain, uh, and yet, <laughs> this is where the conversation takes a turn, because what I have been sort of scratching around in my archaeology of looking in history, and which has been corroborated by the work of Joseph Campbell, Paul Cech, among other people, is this this language that is often used to be heart-centered, heart-focused. Start with the heart. And 
it may seem like a place you end up at after decades and decades of spiritual practice, but little do we know that we don't know what we think we know. I mean, truly, once one of the unfortunate uh, structures of science is this, as I've talked about before with the Broken Science Organization, calling out the fact that once you name something, once you isolate it, once you analyze it to death, you think you know it. And that really beggars off any further exploration or open-mindedness, let alone, God forbid, going back to any sort of ancient wisdom around a subject. And uh, the heart is a gravely misunderstood organ. I, I, if, if not scientifically, then at least in our layperson's consciousness. And I, I very much put myself in that lot uh, with likely most of you uh, because I'm, I'm very much a novice in getting to know the depths of these topics. But it was quite... Uh, quite a eureka moment to further delve into the nature of the heart that yes it is a pump so to speak but it's been evaluated and and described to us in in a very mechanistic one-dimensional aspect and that's really the product uh, in the historical annals of this fascination with steam engine technology in the 19th century and uh, regrettably, that's when a lot of our anatomical knowledge was forged and uh, n- not entirely revisited since then, let alone in a holistic manner. But uh, fascinating to share with you all that while we think of the heart, uh, and it is a very powerful pump, don't get me wrong, because it's something wild. Like, I mean, I, I'm going to two gallons of blood per minute means 100 gallons an hour are traveling through vessels and arteries with a combined length of 60,000 miles throughout the body, which is more than twice the circumference of earth. Uh, I mean, that's really hard to wrap your head around of, of that's what's going on within you. But that's why I want to applaud and, and celebrate the complexity of you and why it should require a lot of your attention. And, I mean, that, that's why it's captured so much of mine that I have realized I want to master as much knowledge as I can of my own physiology. And that's why this stuff really lights a fire within me. But back to the blood, one uh, incredible revelation was that in the embryonic stage of certain animals, I don't know if this has quite been proven for uh for humans, but we'll get to a mechanism of our blood in a moment. Uh, in the embryonic stage, the blood is already in circulation before the heart forms. And that's pretty staggering because, again, I mean, we think, uh, you know, like I said, that was spe- uh, specifically a study done in chickens. Chicken before the egg, egg before the chicken, whichever you think came first. What we're really trying to what we're really trying to get at in a question like that and where I think a reverence for the mystery of life is due is there's just a life force that exists without maybe any explanation or, or at least any measurable explanation. And, um, uh, how that being said, when you dive into this research, as I have through this book and, and through other ancillary readings, one of the, you know, quite amazing 
structures of the blood, and, and this uh, has some parallel to our DNA as well, but there is a vortex structure to blood, and that is a, a lot of what creates its own momentum and motion, and as it spirals, it creates its own frequencies, and, and this is one of the crucial life force elements that also interacts with, as I've said before, the electromagnetic field, when we talk about vibrations, when we talk about electricity, and I have countless volumes to say about electricity without being an electrical engineer, uh, just knowing it from the body side of things. Uh, I mean, this is especially alluring to me to try to understand deeper, but, but the blood, again, one way that we know we're alive and that we're healthy is the condition of our blood. And the core role that blood plays in our day-to-day is oxygenation. And this, this is where I want to start to really get to the climax of this episode and uh, this broadening discussion to highlight the significance of the heart, not just as the, the pump that we think it is that, oh, it pumps the blood, but because oxygen has to reach every cell of the body, the heart, by dint of that role, that operation, becomes vastly and wholly connected. And like we said, it's a, it's a distance 60,000 miles, twice the circumference of Earth that is coursing through our body to deliver that blood full of oxygen. Uh, that is a connectedness that is why we should revisit the idea of being centered and of having a consciousness rooted in our heart. And this is further, I think, enhanced, I mean, this, what I'm advocating for this idea, uh, by the mechanism that the heart is also wired with the, the brain and the central nervous system. Again, these are, these are core systems that, uh, if nothing else in a scientific mode, are letting us know that we're alive and our central nervous system is uh, a critical signaling mechanism for, I mean, especially as an athlete, this is my ability to use my energy, use my strength, recover. Uh, I mean, really our, our I mean, en- energy is what it boils down to, but so much of this is linked to our hormones and those are linked to emotions. And this is the, the beautiful, complex, nonlinear, and yet synergistic existence that we largely have no control over that is coursing through us without our manipulation. However, with our attention, with our awareness, with our choices, we can give it a lot of the sustenance that it needs. But, um, I mean, what, uh, uh, another core part of this understanding, um, is that there's a, there's an intensity of, our emotional experiences that is felt through the heart because, I mean, it's said that our first encounter with external events is really through the heart first. And I'll get into the technical aspect of that in a second. But, I mean, that is, whether we like it or not, we usually feel something before we can think about it later. And uh, I think women... If, if we want to uh, g- give you 
you know, maybe maybe a little bit of criticism, but I, I know women have uh, have corroborated this. The overthinking, I mean, the the replaying, the the for the forward thinking, like that is uh, one of your talents, I would say. Whereas you know, maybe men can be a bit more impulsive and at the mercy of our testosterone sometimes. But uh, truly, fundamentally, for all of us, we feel it first and then think about it later. And the more intense the emotional experience is, the more likely that that is going to be stored in the heart with a memory and a meaning there. And as we said, that then goes to the hippocampus and, and does have a um, correlative experience in the brain. But it's worth noting that the language we use of, of heartbreak or cold-hearted, closed-hearted, I mean, that even though our language is very limited, those are figures of speech that have a basis in, in physiology. But furthermore... One of the great statistics I wanted to share from the book is that the electromagnetic field of the heart is 5,000 times more powerful than the electromagnetic field of the brain. And what that largely promotes is a sensitivity to the field of others, other living things, the trees that you pass, but don't know the names of and don't recognize and take them for granted. The birds that are singing this time of year, the flowers that are effortlessly budding and coming up through the the frost and the cold, uh, but also the people, whether they're in relationship with you or not, whether they're interacting with you or not, we have a sensitivity to those experiences. The, the human body field uh, is especially fascinating to me because it jives with my study of the chakra system. Our, the electromagnetic field of our human anatomy is aligned along the spine. And that, that is why the chakra system has such prominence in the world of healing and in the world of uh, certainly Chinese medicine, but uh, a lot of the Eastern traditions. And thankfully it's coming to the fore once again in, in Western medicine and holistic medicine because I mean, this is critical to how, we, how, when we talk about alignment, when we talk about harmony within our bodies, if those different segments of our electromagnetic field, and they all have different, it's worth a podcast on its own, which I'll certainly have to do the more I learn about the chakra system. But if you do a little research on your own, especially through Gaia TV, shout out to Gaia, lots of content on that. Um, so, so much of the disease treatment world in, in a uh, genuine sense is oriented around that, that you have to revisit your emotional experiences, your, your meaning, your memory in your life and how that corresponds to the respective chakras, because those are, those are, that's energy that is blocked. That is electromagnetism that is not serving your organs in an optimal way. And, and your heart is hurting for that. And your other systems are hurting for that. And if we are unable to recognize the energy that is lost based on a trauma, based on a confusion, uh, based on a lack of awareness, then we really hamper ourselves from, from true healing. Uh, and, and it is the power of the heart that it, even from... I don't know for sure if it's if it's pre-birth, but from birth at least, 
the heart is scanning the electromagnetic field for inputs of patterns of communication and information that it can use to respond hormonally, cellularly, um, you know, and, and one of the more staggering elements of that is they've tested that, uh, that infants, uh, their, their hearts are scanning for love from their mothers and, and they can often intuit. I mean, you talk about an intelligence that transcends the brain as we know it. It's not a brain thing that is helping an infant understand if its mother loves it. It's not a brain thing for you and I to know whom we love and why we love them. Uh, although we might say it's inexplicable. I mean, the, gosh, the language around love is is so limited and and misleading most of the time. But that's why I'm trying to get to the heart of the matter and really understand that there are these forces that compel us, even if we don't have words, even if we don't have rationalizations for them, that are there. And it will serve us uh, if we can recognize this this mechanism and, and become more heart-centered because, I mean, if you, if you think about just your own experience with one person whom you love, if that's a dear friend, a relative, a family member, a significant other, the most significant other perhaps, but, um, but that's, that's two electromagnetic fields in contact that are looking to synchronize when they are perturbed, disrupted in a, in a genuine way, in a, in an organic way that happens just when you have those waves interacting, uh, then what, what is the product of that? These, this syncing up of these new fields to, becoming one that is oscillating, that is still, you know, it's still two uh, hearts that have their own, you know, of course they're, they're residing in your body and they'll have their own independent experience, but they're in relationship, in oscillation with another. And what that synchronization produces is emotion. And the breakdown of that I don't know if it's legitimate, but it's it's my own spin on things, is electric motion. That the electromagnetic experience between two hearts, two souls, is then producing this reaction in our body that stimulates hormones and feelings and new behaviors, uh, whether we're conscious of it or not. That is true electric motion. And that's an impact of the specific spectrum of, of electromagnetic carrying, um, you know, that, those signals from one body to the next. And we, we may vest more, uh, significance. Like I said, we use that, that description of significant other, and we may give them more weight in, in how we respond in our lives, but our heart is doing a lot of the work for us. And, uh, I think another fascinating tidbit uh, in terms of the the oscillating relationships, this ability to go back and forth with other systems, uh, readjust our equilibrium on the fly. Uh, I mean, it's a really unconscionable ability that we have to be in this constant state of, of reaction, reception, response. Um, the heart, the brain, and the GI tract, the gastrointestinal tract, are the three most powerful 
bio-oscillators in the body, which, which produce our internal experience of, as I said, the reaction, the response, the recalibration, uh, something I had heard or learned rather prior to reading this book was this is the source, this, this oscillation and this internal experience and the, the electromagnetic power of the, of the systems within us are, you know, not unlike the chakra system, but they explain in part some of the seemingly inexplicable inner realities we face. For instance, uh, and it's a part of ancient wisdom that a malfunctioning liver was associated with uncontrolled or inexplicable anger and sort of begs the question, like if someone's drinking a lot and damaging their liver, as we know alcohol does, especially chronic alcohol use, is it the alcohol that is making people angry? Because, I mean, my experience with alcohol has not really been like that, (laughs) that it makes me angry. I mean, I think maybe at a point might stir something up in me or, you know, but how much of that is my, my organ interacting with a foreign toxic substance and ethanol or other people or my ego. I mean, it's a, it's a rabbit hole worth going down, but, um, it, it, it's an underlying phenomenon that our response to the outside world is a fundamental one because yes, we come from the womb, but we also come from the wilderness as well. I mean, we have this encoding, which is, supposed to be in relation to more natural occurrences. And, and as we find ourselves in a, an increasingly fake world with material that is plastic, chemical, faux, uh, let alone digital, uh, which is true unreality, that if we're reacting especially with emotion. I mean, it's just a very confusing time for our, for our brain and heart and our bodies that, you know, with how much spent, how much time we spend engaging with screens and with, with technology in general, what that leaves us open to is something I don't think we're, even if we're not, even if we're somehow equipped in in, a, in an evolutionary sort of way, uh, I don't think we have the awareness yet to handle just what that existence is like. And I mean, the, the sensory perceptions of the heart, because of the, the prominent place it occupies that it has to have a relationship with the entire body. It has the same sensory perception as our five senses. And it, it's a, it's an endocrine. It's part of the endocrine system as well, as well, the hormone production system, because the heart will experience again before maybe some of those other, uh, I mean, yes, our, our, we'll hear something, we'll see something, we'll smell something and that, that will incite something first in our heart before anything else. That's a level of, uh, hyper awareness that I think we should cultivate more. It's a, it's a coherence that we're after that. That's where we get this language of being heart centered, aligned with our heart. Coherence is, is the most I would say the most powerful and the most untapped form of energy that we have as individuals. Um, you know, I, th- this is what one of the great, uh, displays of that, that I have from the book as we wind down here to, to really drive this point home as 
coherence in the heart begins and deepens, the entire hormonal cascade of the body alters. This hormonal shift is initiated by the heart making and releasing significantly different amounts of its hormones and neurochemicals. As only one but powerful example, at heart coherence there is an average of 23% reduction in cortisol production, which is a stress hormone with negative impacts on immune function, memory and hippocampal function, and glucose utilization, and a 100% increase in DHEA production, which is an adrenal gland hormone essential in tissue repair, insulin sensitivity, sense of well-being, and sexual hormone production. That is a massive statement and a massive reality that is available to you, which I'll be presenting uh, on, a, on a future podcast as I continue to fly through this book to get to the, there is a section on exercises we can do. Uh, but in a, in a final phrase, what this comes down to for me is promoting an increased concentration of heart consciousness. I think you can trust your heart more than you think. When you realize that the emotions that everyone decries and blames for overreaction and misunderstanding, a lot of that is really symptomatic of the brain. And especially insofar as when you recognize that these systems that are all about mechanistic, reductionist, rational thinking, which is all about brain consciousness, and that's so much of the of the neuroscientist world and the, and the meditation world, consciousness world. I mean, these people like Sam Harris have co-opted consciousness that, that is totally devoid of life force. And what the, probably the most harmful symptom of that is what you, what you get with a total focus on brain consciousness is the disconnect between your brain and your body. Your heart is much, much more connected with your body. And my cat Novak agrees wholeheartedly. He has a little heart, but uh, I'll tell you one of the practices I love is uh, holding him. And he's a big cat. He's almost 15 pounds and quite long. And uh, when I hold him close to my chest and in in my hand, I can feel his little heart beating. Uh, That's always a really special part of my day and we'll often sandwich him and his brother between us uh my my girlfriend and I so then we can really feel that love and connect with that and that's a that's a small fun way for you to you know let your let your animals be close to you feel their life as well so it's a really profound experience to be considering what it'll take to develop a a communication that our heart already has within our bodies. But if we can speak to our hearts more openly, vulnerably trusted to guide our course and pay more attention to what we feel most of the time and then see where our thoughts can take us from there. I mean, thoughts are great for problem solving and a lot of us have to encounter that on a regular basis, but the crises that we face are to paraphrase what Einstein said that they're not going to be solved from the same level of consciousness that created them. And it is our mechanistic, materialistic, greedy, spiritless world that is creating a lot of the, a lot of the poverty that we have. And there is an abundance that exists within your heart, within your soul, if you'll cultivate that and manifest it yourself. And just know that I'm here to help you and support you and love you for doing 
just that.